This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. start the show let's do a podcast um i don't know i don't have anything (laughs) i didn't do anything like good this week and this weekend's been kind of a bust so time to do a podcast i guess podcast time welcome to overdue this is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name is andrew and i'm still on that wedding high i got some cake in my fridge i've been eating leftovers all week i'm sorry your weekend's been a bust but i'm full (laughs) of cake you're still on a wedding high like still well what's nice is we didn't because we didn't go away right away and because we had a decent number of people that we work with and see on a regular basis at the wedding it's been a nice week of like oh remember that part was great oh haven't seen you since the wedding that was a real cool part like it's just been it's a different from coming back from a honeymoon and people being like how was the honeymoon how was that what did you do right because it was like a shared thing that they were also there for no no i mean the Uh, the wedding (laughs) yeah they don't get to come on the honeymoon that's what i was talking about so the important thing though to ask about um is how many of them said anything about what i did at the wedding like how did i do you actually did really well Okay, uh, good. Multiple references. High marks all around. Yeah. Multiple uh, people just called you funny, just straight That's up. That's true. That's um, true. Oh, boy. Yeah. A couple people, like, cited. I'm a wild and crazy guy. Spe- <laughs> like, specific lines from your speech with which that they thought were funny. Cool. Um. So, yeah, I think you went over well. I was a little nervous mm-hmm. about, like, showing you to everyone. Like, cause you're my Andrew and I didn't, I was a little nervous about sharing you with the world, but it seems like it's turned out for the best. Here I am, man, we're going to milk this wedding thing for like, like a good baker's dozen more podcast I intros. Mean, we I think, milked it right? for like 10 intros on the way in. I know. And now we're on the way out. We're going to keep milking it. Remember that time in 2016 where every episode started with wedding talk? Mm-hmm. This is the year Even when the wedding. wedding happened, we couldn't get away from it. No, it's true. We came back. The ne- I can't believe we did a podcast the day after my wedding. What am I, an <laughs> idiot? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's do the podcast, I guess. Okay, so what did you read this week? You read a book. Um. Oh, wait. Let's step back. Let's jump back for a sec. <laughs> if you haven't listened before, hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to Overdue. Um, every week, one of us reads a book and then tells the other person about it. It's not yeah. a thing where we both read the book. It's not a thing where we're really reviewing the books. We're just like a couple guys who like to read but aren't like doctors of reading or anything. <laughs> and then we tell you about the book from our warped and quirky perspective. <laughs> so, Craig, now that I've set the stage, what did you read this week and what is it? And tell me about it. I read Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Which is French for the Miserables. <laughs> the Miserables. Uh, the derelicts. The poor mm-hmm. people. The people who have it hard. Uh, the people who have a tough time. You may have heard of a musical uh, called Les Mis or Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is based on this book. I don't know if you knew that, Andrew. But I mean, it, I assume that there weren't just two different things that were called the same thing but had nothing to do with each other. But I suppose this happened before, right? Yeah, I can't think of it. But I'm sure it's happened. It's 100%. I'm sure, it's, the copyright law wouldn't exist for no reason. Yeah, right. Uh, so he wrote this book in the 18... It came out in the 1860s. I think it's 1862. You fact check me, please. Um, that is right. Great. Uh, and I was fully prepared to to look into this book as like a work of serial fiction, kind of like Dickens and, and those guys from the 19th century. Captain Crunch. <sighs> Count Cho- I love Count Chocula's biography. 
his boography. <laughs> Blueberries is sad. <laughs> Anywho. It's buried sad. Oh, God. oh, man. We might just cut all this out. I don't know. Oh, no. Well, Victor Hugo was going to write a book about the cookie crisp uh, rebellion. Thieves. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho, we are. I'm just like, I told you this already. I want to tell the listeners, too. Okay. But like my morning started with my cat meowing so loud outside my door that he woke me up and it's because he was hungry. And then I gave him food and then he ate so fast that he barfed everywhere. So like that's how my Sunday is going. You are the one who is the miserable. And maybe if my chipperness is just feeling a little forced, it's maybe because of that and other things. Well, cause, and your cat's right there like pretending like it never happened because he doesn't remember it because he's a cat. Hold him up to the microphone. Have him barf on the microphone. Oh, no, he ran away. Okay, he knows better than now. that. Yeah. So... Uh, it wasn't published in that kind of like, here's a chapter in a magazine fashion um, that we've talked about for other writers of the time. It was just a big old book book dump? It was a big old book dump. Uh, I think the first two volumes of five came out, and then the, the following three volumes came out like a month or two later. And he was very adamant that his publishers not like release summaries or excerpts ahead of time there was like a six-month media campaign for the book where they had press releases and the new york times like wrote about this book coming out which is kind of unprecedented he had been writing professionally for 30 or 40 years at that point Mm -hmm. so people knew who he was uh the hunchback of notre dame had come out in 31 32 something like that so like and Victor that was Hugo, one of his biggest books, like yeah. outside of France. Mm-hmm. Like it was so, it was so big that um, it actually inspired a lot of tourism to the titular titular uh, cathedral, which was like right? kind of run down at the time, right? Yeah, it was, and it um, and it apparently that kicked off a like new appreciation of Renaissance era buildings and sort of preserving those buildings, which I don't know, like. I know we think about it a lot now, but I don't know like historically how much we thought about preserving old cool stuff. Yeah. Like it feels like we were really like in old times we were really comfortable just like melting all the statues and using all the <laughs> gold again and like not not keeping anything around. Well, I was actually thinking about that while I was reading this book because as you texted me during our research for the show that France had about 10 million revolutions. There were a bunch like just pick one, guys. <laughs> And this book is not set during the like famous one or in 1789. There are a bunch um, of famous ones. I, uh, guess. I, know, I know, I know. But this is that's the one where like that was inspired by ours, and it's like the the analogous one where they got rid of the king the first time. Um, this one is set in 1832, but because there's all of these revolutions that just keep happening, and and the social order keeps upsetting itself over and over again. There isn't time for that reverence to set in, and it seems like yeah. every year or two, someone's like, get rid of that guy's statues. Get rid of his art. That guy's a <laughs> jerk. He ruined my mom's house. I can't go to school, and cholera is killing my kids, and it's that guy's fault. Burn his gold. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's. I was reading about Hugo, and he had like quite a, it was quite a time to be a, a young French boy. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, because yeah. when he was like two, Napoleon was a guy. Like Napoleon he came took to power. power, yeah. Happy birth- that, happy second birthday, Victor. Right, and that's so that Bonaparte. The like the French Empire and Napoleon rose right out of that first. Um, I don't yes. know if it was the first French Revolution, but it was the one that sprung out of the American Revolution, and like so he's a guy for a while, and then the monarchy comes back. Like the Bourbons, I think, come back. The Bourbon Restoration, yes, right. Louis the Sixteenth, I believe. Man, bourbon, I, I like a good bourbon restoration every once in a while. <laughs> I could use one you know right now. I mean. um, and then, yeah, then there's a July revolution in 1830 where Which, they throw out the bourbons. And then, like, the, the House of Orléans comes up. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they get overthrown, like, later. So his life, <laughs> there's just a lot of fighting between monarchs and people who, like, don't know what they want, but they don't want monarchs. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's kind of funny. Um, this book in particular is about the so-called June Rebellion, which takes place in 1832, two years after the July Rebellion. 
well, that's well, weird well. calendar math. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because the book really glosses over the July rebellion, which like obviously was, it didn't stick. I don't uh, know. I, well, it stuck for 18 years. I guess it's well, not until 1848 when like everyone in Europe was like, hey, what if we had a revolution too? You got one and I got one and you got one and your king's dead and our king's dead. Everybody well, gets a revolution. I took AP Euro. Don't worry about it. I okay. know the history. That's good. Um, <laughs> but it's an, it's also important for Hugo in that um, he was finally elected into like the French Academy, which is their like Arts and Letters Association in the 30s. Uh, and then he was a member of Parliament in 1848 or 49 um, after that reign ended. Uh, and I think it was like Louis Napoleon, who was like Emperor Louis the <laughs> Third, came back, and Hugo publicly denounced him and called him a traitor to France. So then Hugo actually had to leave the country. It's just uh, like Louis Napoleon sounds like the like the Billy Carter of of the like French Revolution. <laughs> It sounds like I don't know anything about French history, and it's like, who's in charge of France? Uh, oh, uh, Louis? Louis Napoleon? Louis Napoleon. <laughs> Louis Napoleon Jean-Claude is the king of France. Um, yeah, and that's that. the sort of tumult and the like going back and forth is sort of reflected in Hugo's own life. So his mm-hmm. dad was a, uh, was a uh, military officer under Napoleon. Loved him. Um, Loved that guy. High, yeah, pretty high ranking. Like Napoleon a lot. He is not on the Arc de, Arc de Triomphe because he failed in Spain. So, oops, uh, f- failures don't get on the on the Arc. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, but his mom, who he um, eventually settled down with in Paris, and who controlled like a lot of his education and stuff, was a Catholic and a royalist. So, mm-hmm. like early on. Um, Hugo is like very royalist and like he's he's being a good boy and and sticking with what he was brought up with but then later on in life um, and by the time like Hunchback and uh, absolutely Les Mis has come out like he's he's reversed course and now is like he's a free thinker and a Republican and and like in the in the sense that you like republics not in the sense that you like want to take everyone's birth control away um (laughs) <laughs> getting political a little political here it's april we're in yeah, primary so france, season it's a crazy time to live in france and to be french yes he was also in he did come back and was in paris during the prussian occupation which is when everyone had to eat zoo animals because there wasn't enough food and he said like he was at one point just eating the unknown like he didn't know which exotic animals were being handed to him for that his meals. sounds like you'd have to be so rich to do that now. Just Ex- like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Jeeves, surprise me. Zebra sandwiches again? Ugh. I, I feel like I just ate a penguin. <laughs> they were, no one wanted to do it, though. They were running out of food. It was either rats or zoo animals, and it, you don't eat which, the rats. I know which I would pick. I would do it. Is all I'm saying. I would. Yeah. Okay. So this book was apparently inspired by a real incident where Hugo was in Paris during the June Rebellion. He was like writing some plays or something because he wrote a bunch of plays, uh, and he overheard the shots. Uh, it was the night of june 5th and june 6th in 1832 uh, and he overheard like the fighting and went and saw it and had to like take cover and at that point it was an insurrection against louis philippe the orleans king mm-hmm. uh, and it was a constitutional monarchy at this point and he was like the he the middle class loved him but the poor people who were dying of cholera didn't like him and the rich people who were totally fine being royalists didn't like him okay so there was kind of like a war coming at him from both sides. And mm-hmm. that's where this insurrection comes from. And the people in the events of this novel lead up to uh, that event and the fallout therein. So like a lot of what Hugo's writing about is 
the social forces that put these particular people in these situations and force them to do what they're doing. Okay. Um, there's an element of like randomness and fate and like kind of the whims of society that, that land them where they are for better or for worse. Okay. Um, did you know, like fun fact before we get into like the meat of the book that there are still pretenders to the defunct French throne? No, you alluded to this. I wanted to hear about it though. It's like, there's this guy named Henri de Orleans. Man, my bad French is just going to go all over the place. (laughs) Orleans. Henri de Orleans. Uh-huh, and he's, good. <laughs> he was born in 1933 and his supporters claim that he has the best, like the best claim to the French throne, even though the French crown isn't really a thing anymore. And like also fun, there are also people who claim descent from Napoleon and claim to oh, be yeah. rulers of the defunct French empire. So I, I guess realistically, I don't know what you do if you think you should have a crown like do you just go around telling people about it all the time like in bars like you're like oh i'm the well you you run a factory but i am the king i could have been somebody Henri has written a lot of books just about um, being the pretender to the throne no I, I don't know they're all in french so i can't read them but like <laughs> one's called the most recent one is published in 2003 and it's called the history and heritage i think mm-hmm um, I guess he's just waiting around for people to get tired of democracy, right? Well, he did. He ran for election. That doesn't make any sense. Um, You're delegitimizing yourself. Else? Hold on. I'm the heir to the throne, but I will participate in your. Oh yeah, he democracy. ran. He ran in the European elections of 2004 and lost. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's a painter and has launched his own brand of perfume. Oh, that's the. Th- I don't. I can't reconcile kings in an era where there are cell phones. Like, I can't, like, I just can't think of a king using modern technology and, like... But, like, they're the real king, like, the British royals, they're still around using uh, phones and stuff. Oh, I guess you're right. What, does the queen use, like, a cell phone, do you think? I'm sure she has a Snapchat. Oh, what it... It would just be all those dogs all the time. It would just be those dogs. Oh, all right, let's go follow the queen's Snapchat. Podcast canceled podcast canceled let's talk about a book instead i guess so what's the miserables about the miserables I mean, you already told me but like what happens <laughs> it's about these people who are trying to get by it starts in 1815 napoleon uh was just kicked out and we when hugo hugo got exiled for his beliefs yes. as well and he yes. spent um 15 years yeah on the Isle of, how do you pronounce it, Guernsey? That's good enough for me. Um, and uh, if you go to visit guernsey.com slash Victor dash Hugo, um, the tourism <laughs> board there is very enthusiastic about you coming to visit his house and swim in his bay and walk on his favorite paths. Ooh. And do all this stuff that he did while he was living there in exile okay. against his will. So cool. Cool. So I want to talk, I will never be able to fit all of this book into the like half of the podcast that we have remaining. That's just not going to happen. So okay. if, if you, the listener, are a fan of this book, I apologize in advance. I hope I do good by you. Uh, the best way I can do that is by talking about the people in this book and then we'll allude to some of the stuff that happens to them because the overall story is that a couple of characters meet each other in a bunch of different ways, the revolutions happen, and then uh, their particular stories are wrapped up. Like, it's kind of, he's bolted this personal story up, like, on top of history, and then history occasionally, like, shines through, and is like, hey, I'm I'm real, I'm here, don't worry about me. Okay. Um, so our main character is Jean Valjean, JVJ, who served 19 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. That seems like a uh, fair sentence. Well, <laughs> that's... Like, how good was the bread, though? <laughs> we do... I don't think he got to eat it. Uh, he was caring for his sister's kids after her husband died, and he's, like, trying to prune trees as a job, and he's having trouble making ends meet. So he steals this loaf of bread. He gets caught. He's supposed to serve five years, 
And all the time he's like, ah, my family's probably dying. I got to get out and help him. And he tries to escape. He gets caught. He gets put back in for more years. Then he's like, ah, prison's the worst and it's turning me into a monster. I got to get out. He tries to get out and he, he can't. And so they put him back in. And this happens a couple of times. Over, so finally he ends up serving 19 years in prison. Oh, okay. So yeah. he's not serving it for the bread thing. It's just like he got in there for the bread thing and then he kept making it worse. Yes. Then okay. he, yes. <laughs> now, t- to be fair, it sounds like it was pretty bad in there. Like I, I kind of sympathize with him trying to get out, you know. Uh, but yes, he did make it worse. He did. <laughs> Uh, it's a little bit of his fault. Uh, and we're introduced to him almost 100 pages into the book after we spent a lot of time with uh, this bishop uh, whose nickname is Bienvenu, uh, mm-hmm. which I believe means welcome. Like, he's just a really cool guy, Bishop Muriel. And he's running, he's the Bishop of Dean. He was based on a real guy that Hugo read about. Who's and Dean? It, uh, like Did everybody the- get their own bishop back then? No. <laughs> I could, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay. I think. Uh, and he was like a really unassuming bishop who was really nice to everybody. And Jean Valjean comes to town and he's got his passport that says like, I'm a criminal. I can't hide it. You need to know that I'm a criminal. And there's this really moving like 20 or 30 pages where he's trying to find a place to sleep. He's trying to find a place to work. He's trying to pl- find a place to get food. And anytime someone hears who he is, they're like, nope, get out. Can't have you here. Bop, bop, bop. Wash our hands of you. Mm-hmm. And he finally ends up at the bishop's house, and the bishop's like, come on in. Just, like, have some food. It's cool. Don't worry about it. So this is like a frame thing where he then tells the bishop his sad story? Uh, no. He's just, the bishop knows, like, instantly this is a bad dude. Oh, okay. This is, like, the beginning of the book. Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know if it was, like, I don't know, if if it started here and then it flashed back and then it... I was waiting for it, too, and it never did. Okay, cool. Uh, Jean Valjean uh, ends up stealing some of the bishop's stuff in the middle of the night, running away, getting caught, being brought back by Inspector Javert uh, and some other people. And the bishop says, let him go. He's cool. I gave him that stuff. I don't know why you rounded him up. He's fine. He's a cool guy. If the bishop was going to be cool, then who, how did they find out that he took this stuff? Because he had the like criminal passport, and he had a bunch of stuff that he totally couldn't have had. Like okay. They, like, like, where did you get all that silver, you criminal? Okay. Come on. Uh, Living and then, beyond his means. Yes. And then uh, he's like dumbfounded by the kindness of the bishop. He gets, you know, he wanders off. He ends up like stealing uh, some money from a little boy. And <laughs> he's really reformed then, hasn't he? Well, but then the little boy like runs away because he's scared of him and like he really wanted the money back, but he can't get it. And then Jean Valjean has this crisis of faith where he realizes that the bishop told him that he could be a good person uh, if he went with God and did good things. And here he is stealing from a child. And from like that, I told this whole story because from that point forward, Jean Valjean. Uh, like pledges to never be a bad person again, Mm -hmm. to never hurt someone like physically if possible. Uh, He basically becomes Bruce Wayne without the beating people up. Like he is, he remakes himself. He opens a factory and like totally rebuilds this town because they make like cool bracelets or something. And uh, then he's like rich forever, but has to live sort of incognito because technically uh, he's still like a criminal. Like he has to adopt multiple personalities, like a, or other identities, to keep himself safe. Okay. After the first like fifth of the book, he does go back to prison, um, and escapes, and fakes his own death. So from there on out, Javert, who is the inspector who's been tracking him, who's kind of like if there was a Batman tracking Batman. Like, if there was, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's not quite a Batman and Joker relationship. It was just a private inspector, like, or private investigator tracking down another private investigator. Yes, yes. Uh, and he's constantly hunting him throughout the book, and they keep crossing paths. Um, he fakes his own death so that he can get out of that and continue on his business. And from there on, Javert, like, keeps randomly recognizing him in places um, and all that. So that's... 
that's Jean Valjean's like setup. Um, in this town that he's running, uh, he comes across this woman, Fantine or Fantine, who everybody's name sounds like a delicious cheese. <laughs> There is no Duke de Camembert in this book. I must disappoint you. That's too bad. So Fantine had a prank played on her when she was young. She's a working class girl. And this elaborate prank, quote unquote, involves like four guys hanging out with her and her friends. And they like hang out with them for a summer and make out and like go on trips. And they like have this elaborate like vacation together. And then the dudes just leave. They're like, oh, our moms and dads said that we couldn't be with people of your class. See you later. The bill's paid for. Bye. Mm-hmm. At least they paid before they left. That's yeah. Crazy. It's not not too classy. Because then Fantine is left with a daughter that she can't afford to care for. So she leaves her daughter, Cassette, who's another major player in the book, uh, at an inn. She comes across an inn where these people, the Thénardier... Uh, they have two daughters about her age, so Fantine's like, all right, well, I'm going to leave her with you. Uh, I'm going to go get a job, and I will send you money every month to take care of my daughter because I can't take care of her in Paris while I'm working. Seems like not a... I don't... I can't think of that happening now, mm-hmm. but I guess that's a thing you could do. I just feel like it would be like easier... It's just... Everything's harder now because it's easier to track everybody down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's large portions of this book where it's like, really? How did you How did you just make up a new name for yourself? I, just, I feel like if I went back in time, like 100 years, I would have no trouble just like doing a bunch of crimes and then moving somewhere else <laughs> and having a new name and just like never having it come up. It would just be so easy to be off the grid because there's barely even a grid. <laughs> They're barely roads. Yeah. (laughs) And that's a lot of what happens in this book. There's a lot of people moving somewhere. They've adopted a different name. And if they're like dirty or covered in blood, like people don't recognize them. Right. And that happens a couple of times. You just have to put on a big fake mustache. Yeah. Uh, So Fantine is a great example of uh, great is not maybe a good word, but. She's she's one of the main examples of poverty in this book and how it motivates people and how it traps people. Right. Uh, she, you know, gets a job making like clothes really cheaply and uh over time the Tenardier turn out to not be good people and they are abusing her daughter but not telling her that obviously and continually asking for more money from her and she's trying to pay her rent and she's in debt to her uh, to her, to her like landlords and to the people she got furniture from, and she's continually making less and less money. At one point, she sells all her hair. Uh, so if you like are familiar to, with to buy like a wash band or what? No, to like to... it's like a gift of the match, I think. But like worse because if she doesn't send the money, like who knows what's gonna happen to her daughter? So sure, okay, yeah, it's. Uh, and then she's this is this one gave me the heebie-jeebies like she's at like watching a juggler in the street and there's some guy who's like oh, I'm a dentist I buy teeth like that literally that's like what this guy's doing he's like sell me your teeth I'll take your teeth and she tells this woman who's kind of been teaching her how to be poor and get by on like not a lot of money like I'm thinking about it and she's like I don't know if you should do that why would you that sounds like a bad idea, and she totally does it. And she sells she sells her incisors, Andrew. Those are the front ones, right? Those are the front ones. Yeah, at least sell some of the like crappy like middle ones. What do those things do? Well, but nobody wants them because they they think the exact same thing. You oh, just okay. Thought. <laughs> well, that's true. I guess we do live in like a capitalist society with supply and demand and stuff. So yeah. Um, and so Fantine's not in a good way. She ends up getting uh, accosted by a man in the street and then Javert who's the who's now working there he uh, brings her in and he's going to throw her in prison and she's like oh my god I can't care for my daughter and then uh, Jean Valjean who is the mayor of this town because he built that bracelet factory he comes in and no one knows that he's Jean Valjean I don't know if I told you that he comes in and he's like, let her go. She's fine. I'll pay for all this. It's fine. I'm Mr. Moneybags, Mayor Moneybags here. 
let her go. Bitch Uncle Paintbags. And Javier's like, that doesn't make any sense. You're a crazy person. And he's like, nope, I'm the mayor. I'm the crazy mayor. Let her go. Uh, <laughs> what? And so she ends up like convalescing in a hospital. She's ill. She's beaten up. And uh, Jean Valjean, as Mayor Madeleine, uh, promises to bring her her daughter at some point. And Javert has to resign because he like can't handle. Javert has a very rigid sense of what the law is. If it is a law, he must uphold it. He does not question, like, good. He doesn't question whether or not laws are good or bad. Okay. So if, he's law- lawful neutral. Yeah, incredibly lawful neutral, and. Uh, Jean Valjean is like, I don't know. He might be chaotic good. He's like seal stuff, right? But like, well, not he's... anymore. Okay. So what is his, like, what's motivating him now? Just like getting by? Getting by. He has built this town out of nothing basically and supported all these people and he, and he wants to help people. Okay. Um, but he has to, he, he knows he's running from his past. That's somewhere on the good spectrum. Yeah, I somewhere. think like a reformed person, you could make a case for them being like neutral good at least. Mm-hmm. 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 I would think so. Chaotic good is more of like a Robin Hoody kind of thing. Like you wouldn't probably settle down and make a whole town, but yeah, you can read into character alignment pretty much whatever you want. For yeah, <laughs> go f- buy a Dungeons Dragons manual if you don't know what we're talking about. It's called the Player's <laughs> Handbook. Yeah, I know. Spy any of I'm them. Just It'll be in know. There. Go buy D and D five edition player's handbook. Let okay, me know great. What you think. Um, <laughs> so okay, so we're going through this book. Uh-huh. We're, meeting a, we're meeting a bunch of miserables. Mm-hmm. Is it is the book like because it's a really big book? Is it a bunch of smaller stories that like coalesce into a bigger one, or like what's the what's the shape of the of the book? It's unwieldy. Okay, um, there are. A bunch of it's not vignettes that are like occurring in parallel. It does progress linearly, mm-hmm. um, but it is a bunch of shorter episodes that build over the course of time. So you've got this Jean Valjean who escapes and he's on the run, and then you skip ahead a couple chapters, and every once in a while Hugo will do this thing that was actually very reminiscent of Moby Dick when I read Moby Dick, where the narrator may or may not just be Victor Hugo. Like, he never names him. Occasionally, he will say the author of this story or the narrator of this book. Okay. He will refer to other pages in the book in a way that feels very not 19th century, but that's cool. Uh, he will go on tangents about French history. So, like, or about a concept in the town that we're in or something like that. And I think that's why I read an unabridged edition of the book, and I I imagine there are abridged versions that cut most of that out. So it's just the story instead. Because, yeah, I saw you tweeting about this yesterday, asking people, like, what's the deal with all these the little history lessons in this book? Yeah, and it's funny because it does weave into the characters. So, like, the beginning of... Uh, I'm sure, like, the contextual information helps you understand more about their motivations, but that you don't strictly need it to read the story. Yeah, so my two examples for that, and I, I definitely wanted to talk about this, so I'm glad that we're here. Uh, volume 2, uh, after the close of Fantine's story, Jean Valjean is going to go off and get Cassette. And you're like, okay, he's going to rescue her from this terrible inn. Feed me the next part of the story. Like, let's go. no. We have to talk about the Battle of Waterloo first for like a long time. Okay. And we need to talk about how cool Napoleon was, but basically he lost because of the weather. Doesn't that stink? Fate's the worst. <laughs> sounds like, yeah, Napoleon totally could have kicked everybody's butt, but it was like raining. <laughs> so it wasn't even fair. And we have to talk about the notion of what heroes are and who's good people and who's not. And I'm going to show you this shining example of one guy, and then I'm going to tell you a story about Tenardier, who runs that inn, if you recall, and how he used to go out at night and loot dead bodies from the battlefield. And one time when he was looting a dead body, uh, the guy wasn't dead, <laughs> and his name was Georges Paul Mercy. And when he woke up, he thought Tenardier had saved him. So, hooray! <laughs> and he gives him some money and treats him with great respect. 
that comes up later in the story of Marius, who's a character I really like, uh, who's like one of the driving forces of the latter half of the book, um, who is Pa Mercy's son. They have a bad relationship. They come together when Pon Mercy dies. And one of the things he leaves him is a letter that says, remember the name Tenardier. That guy's awesome. He's totally not a thief. Don't worry about it. So can you like so when it when the book goes into history mode, mm-hmm. like to what extent does it like purport to be like actual Real? factual history? Like Completely. obviously, obviously he has Hugo has like an agenda that he's pushing. Yes. But it does purport to be like real researched, like actual history of stuff that happened. Yes. Actual factual. And it's, and it's stuff that happened in his lifetime. So it's it's like reasonable. Like he he, he would know a bunch of firsthand sources and be one himself. So. Yes. And he and he could talk to people who were uh, first first hand primary, primary sources. sources. That's the, word the right. Word. That's Thank the actual you. name for those people. Um, <laughs> he actually wrote like a short story called... Oh, what is it called? Claude Je, Claude Gu, um, about another like notable figure in French history, and that I think s- he worked with similar people to like source that. There was it's been referred to as like a documentary short story. So okay. he worked with similar people to do that work as with this. Um, and there's a bunch of people that are real characters on whom some of these people are based, um, Jean Valjean, etc. And he, ref- you know, Napoleon's all over this book, like his real stuff. At one point, Marius like has a, uh, like Hugo, like you said earlier, Marius was raised as a royalist and then like kind of discovers revolution in a library and has like this big aha moment about how cool he thinks Bonaparte is and all this stuff. And it's all just Hugo cramming in actual facts that Marius would have learned. Okay. Um, the big one, probably the most infamous one in the entirety of the book, is the four chapters that Hugo spends talking about Paris's sewer system. Cool. And this comes up towards the end of the book, so I'm, I, I know I'm skipping ahead, but I kind of, I just want to read this to you. So at this point, there's a big battle going on. The revolution has begun. The it's actually ending at this point. For now. Yeah, for now, until another one. Uh, And Jean Valjean has ducked into the sewers to save Marius, and you're like, oh my god, what's going to happen next? Turn the page. Paris throws five million a year into the sea, and this not (laughs) metaphorically. How and in what way? Day and night. With what purpose? None. With what thought? Without thinking about it. For what use? For nothing. By means of what organ? By means of its intestine. What is its intestine? Its sewer. Statistics show that France alone deposits effluent total showing a hundred million every year into the Atlantic from the mouths of her rivers. Uh, Every hiccup of our cloaca costs us a thousand francs. So because we're sending all our poop into the rivers uh, and not using it for like fertilizer in our fields... That's why Paris is dying and all the people oh, so are poor and angry. He's anti-sewer then. I maybe sure. It but it oh, reads like a ninety-nine percent invisible episode, <laughs> <laughs> where he's like, "Let me pull." He literally is like, "If we could remove the bed skirt of France, you would see the sewers laid out like yada 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 yada." And then he gives like a and historical. Then he would ask you to donate, like that. His <laughs> book was brought to you by readers like you. Uh huh. And he he even like gives a historical lesson about the guy who who got permission from Napoleon to tour the existing sewers before they raised a bunch of money to fix them. And it's like that is in the book as a parenthetical in between Jean Valjean jumping into a sewer. And then the the chapter, four chapters later, that goes, Jean Valjean found himself in the sewers. Like, I guess you needed that, I guess. As a plot device, you don't need it. But as a as a giant book attempting to reconcile 50 years of revolution and the causes behind it okay. and the effects on the individual people, I suppose you leave in your chapter about your chapters about poop tubes. I guess. I just guess. because you know you're like you're not gonna publish a standalone book about that that anybody's gonna buy, but no. <laughs> you can definitely get them to read about it if, if you sneak it into this thing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. 
So the other characters that, that that's like the historical asides. The other characters that I've alluded to that we should talk about. Um, Marius is the guy that I was mentioning earlier, and he's a young man in 1830s France. He left his he's kind of not had a great relationship with his royalist family. Um, his real dad was kind of pushed out because he was a free thinker like Hugo's dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, he reconciles with him on his deathbed, basically, um, and assumes his dad's name and his dad's political beliefs and sets out into the world to make some good. And And he joins the Friends of the ABC, or the Friends of the ABC, as it is written down, sure. which is a pun, Andrew, as I'm sure you would appreciate, because the word ABC in French uh, means the oppressed. And but if you say the letters A B C in French, it sounds like that. So okay. Hugo Hugo likes puns. All right, but like this edition takes pains to explain them when they exist, which is yeah, really helpful. That's that. I mean, with puns and with all jokes, they do really get better when the person who's using them like really digs down and explains just the everything about how it works. Yeah, it makes for better radio and better books. Mm-hmm. So Marius is at the heart of the revolution, and there's all the friends of the ABC, and there's a bunch of French names that I won't even say because they all sound like I'm sneezing. Uh, and those guys are planning this June rebellion. So Marius is hooked up with those guys. While he's in Paris, he becomes a lawyer. He's striking out on his own. As I said, he discovers revolution in the stacks of a library which would make all you librarians very happy like he goes and he reads a bunch of stuff and becomes Mm -hmm. like an idealist um he falls in love with cassette now at this point a whole bunch of things have happened to jean valjean and cassette that they are now uh in paris she was educated at a convent and there's this like really weird passage where he's basically stalking her like they haven't talked to each other but he's in love with her by seeing her sitting next to him on a bench um, and that goes on for a long time. That culminates in one of my favorite scenes in the book. So I want to dive into this one a little bit deeper, because uh, it's every almost every important character coalesces into this one scene in a really okay. cool way. Sure. So Jean Valjean is living in Paris with Cosette. They feel safe at this point. The name Jean Valjean has died, and uh, Jean Valjean has taken this other name from a guy, Fauchelevent, who he once saved from a crushed cart because, you know, Jean Valjean is Batman and super strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cosette was educated at the convent. She's doing fine. They're living in the city. The Thénardiers, after Jean Valjean, like, saved Cosette from them and basically ruined them, have moved into Paris and are running this elaborate grifting operation. Uh, at one point, Marius discovers a packet of letters from five different people to five different people, all in the same ha- same handwriting, and he discovers that they're written by a man named Jondrette, who is basically spam mailing rich people in Paris to try and get their money. <laughs> like he's right. Oh, you, I, my family's poor. I'm a successful playwright. Help me out. And then he sends another letter to someone else like, I'm a woman down on her luck. You got to help me out. I live over here. Send me money, please. I know your sister. Forward like, this letter on to 10 people and you will have a good day. Mm-hmm. I am a wayward prince from Nigeria. I have money for you if you will just give me your bank account. Like it's it's. Kind I of- need your money so I can give you all my money. <laughs> It really like if you just if you think about it for like a second, it makes a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense. Uh, and Marius is living next to these people, and he hasn't quite figured out their scheme, but they have managed to uh, hook Jean Valjean into this scheme. They've summoned him to their apartment, mm-hmm. and Thenardier knows that it's Jean Valjean who ruined him before and stole cassette from him. So he plans this elaborate ambush. And at this point, all Marius knows is that that old guy, Jean Valjean, uh, disguised as someone else with another name, um, is the like guardian of this girl that he's in love with. So he has to like protect that guy because the girl he doesn't know but that he's in love with is clearly attached to him. Sure. Uh, 
and he's not sure what to do with these poor people who are clearly running a grifting operation. So he goes to the police. He, of course, meets Javert, because Javert's the only policeman in France. And Javert's like, all right, take these two pistols. When this is about to go down, watch them through the wall. And when stuff's about to go bad, fire one of them, and me and my dudes will run in. Totally cool. Okay. Of course, in... In this ambush that happens where a bunch of other bad guys who work with Thenardier disguised as Jondrette uh, ambush Jean Valjean, Thenardier reveals himself as Thenardier, the innkeeper, and Marius hears that name and is like, oh my god, my dead dad told me to protect that guy. Oh no, that's the guardian of the woman I've never met but I love. What Mm -hmm. do I do? (laughs) And it's just, just really awesome. It feels it, the kind of the setup is timeless. Like he's peering through a wall and he's not sure when to fire off this gun and things are getting worse and worse for Jean Valjean. And at some point he like throws a note through the wall that's in the daughter's handwriting that convinces them to like start running away and Javert busts in anyway and arrests everybody. But Jean Valjean Batman's out the window and no one catches him like. It's, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> when someone Batmans out a window? No, I know, like, they jump out of a window, but they don't die. That's what, that's how you Batman out of a window. Well, and, like, you and I are having a conversation, then we look to Batman for an answer, and he's just gone. Like, he didn't tell us he was leaving. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, he, I think he prefers to do that, like, out in the open, so he doesn't have to, like. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. That's true. Uh, but that that scene in particular I think just represents for me Marius getting caught in these scenarios where Jean Valjean, the good thief reformed, uh, Thenardier, the bad thief who gets like lower and lower as the book goes on, Mm -hmm. and Javert, the like lawful neutral, uphold the law above all else, kind of all come into conflict and Marius is caught in the middle of it. As someone who is fighting for a better France, but like repeatedly having his mind blown about the different things lay, laid out before him. Okay. Um, Sounds like that, an interesting cocktail of, of stuff mixed in with all this history about, yeah, it's, about it's, the French Revolution and stuff. And Hugo does... One of the things that I will probably I will read this book again or at least read passages of this book again because I did not give the historical stuff credit in the same way that when I read Moby Dick I was like can we stop talking about candles please can we stop talking about how boats work and just tell me where the whale is well because yeah and when when you and I are reading stuff we're kind of like I'm not going to say that we're, we're like blowing through it, but we are reading through it with purpose and so when it does go on long diversions it's like what yeah. Can we get on to the thing? Like I gotta finish this. So I can talk <laughs> about it on my podcast. Yeah. Why wasn't why wasn't Victor Hugo thinking about that? Uh but the doubling of the various identities is what for me helps the like keeps the plot exciting. And I saw this like all of the different identities that Jean Valjean has and the various people who uncover them over the course of the book. Um and what it means when like one character thinks he did something, but he was actually doing something else as a different person, and that causes them to behave differently or, or respond differently to a situation. Um, sure. That's really... It's generally pleasing to read as a kind of pulpy adventure story. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's woven into Hugo giving you history lessons so you understand the stakes of this adventure story. And it's ultimately like a two-day rebellion that gets put down. 800 people die uh, like three hundred thousand, like three thousand people were involved, and then there are other tiny little things like this that occur. But that particular reign stands for another sixteen years after this little rebellion. Sure. So th- it's interesting that for me, this this book has, and I'll, I was doing a little bit of reading about this. Everyone assumes that this book takes place in the the French Revolution that more people are familiar with. Right, like and not one of the, the like mini yeah. aftershock revolution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and he uses that as a microcosm to explore, like I said, the the work of poverty and the work of uh, class disenfranchisement, um, 
and the way that like a, a justice system can alienate and leave people stranded and drive them to this kind of kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's it's worth noting at this point, I guess, that um, that like Dickens and Camus and Dostoevsky all cite uh, Hugo as an inspiration. And I think you can see like elements of that sort of thing. Oh, totally. Like a lot of their bodies of work, too. So. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, Have you. So here's kind of a question I kind of want to go out on. Kind of, kind of, kind of. Kind of. What. If any, like real world sense do you have of poverty? Because this book for me has a couple really powerful portraits of it. It's particularly with Fantine um, in the earlier chapters and with the way that the Tenardiers abuse that poverty later in the book. Uh, that I don't know that I have seen. Uh, it surely must exist in in similar forms today, and I know that I'm privileged to live where I live, but I'm always like three blocks away from someone who might be living in like actual poverty and struggling. Um, and I don't know that I always have a, a real clear image of what that is today. Yeah, like I so I you know I'm in Jersey City, and I also um write about stuff and go to like visit San Francisco a lot. So I get pictures of like a couple different kinds of like poverty and, and homelessness. Um, Cause I don't know, like San Francisco is just like busted in a lot of ways because mm-hmm. the, the inequality there is so extreme that even like, you know, quote unquote, normal work, working class, like middle class families cannot actually get a decent apartment anywhere in the city anymore. Yeah. Um, and you know you pass homeless people like all the time there are people like the there are people who i know to look at them because they have like the same sort of haunts that they yeah yeah that they use um they're like you know people outside the train station it's like i i'd see it but like as far as its existence as like a systemic problem i don't know like i i have a tendency and i think a lot of people have a tendency to just kind of like turn a blind eye sometimes yeah oh totally like i i've i have ever given out like money or even like food and stuff to people Mm -hmm. but i definitely don't do it like regularly yeah and i always whenever i don't i i'm always struck by i i try to at least be like oh my god what would it sound like if i had to speak those words what would it feel like what is the situation that would cause me to have to come up to a stranger and ask for a handout or ask for help with something? Yeah. And how would and I it's... convince them to help me? Yeah. I don't know. Like one of, one of the more recent times that I actually ended up giving out anything, it was like a lady and her kid who were like trying to get, or she'd said they were trying to get like train fare, mm-hmm. like cab fare back to wherever they were going to. And like, it's just like you you look at them and you judge their story but you also judge like okay she actually did have a kid like I, like you judge how they're dressed and like how likely they are to actually have a home somewhere i don't know it's rough because like you want to do something about it in the in the abstract and then i don't know i'm just kind of thinking out loud i don't know no no i no it makes but like it makes total sense Uh, for me but it's also like it's it's like you're confronted with that like reality and yeah even like whether you give out money or not like i'm i just i don't know how to solve that problem or how to help address that problem like the actual yeah problem and not just like the symptoms of it Mm mm-hmm because mm-hmm. I can like throw a box of donuts at a bunch of people and like make them happy for a couple hours, but I know what you're saying though. Like, what do you do beyond the one act of charity without like that just being your life? Like, yeah, and I'm not, like, I'm not like, and I'm also not saying like don't give money out to people because it doesn't actually solve the problem. Like, no, don't, don't. No, there and there are a lot of person. There are a lot of a lot of people who mm-hmm. think that way. Which is like, if you do think that way, like you're not. I don't think you're wrong necessarily but i also know that there are a lot of people or at least you're not you're not wrong insofar as that's not like gonna fix yeah anything in the long term there are a lot of, there are a lot of uh economists and, and 
other very intelligent people I know working on like what are the what are the best ways to do micro loans? What are the best ways to help people stay on their feet even if you're giving them a small amount of money? How do you sustain people who are trying to get out of poverty? Well, and I think like unfortunately at this point, I mean not entirely unfortunately, but unfortunately in a lot of ways, um, this is going to start getting more play now like more attention Mm -hmm. now because it's starting to affect like white people yes unfortunately like you've got like a big especially like heroin is a like a huge problem Mm -hmm. for um like lower middle class white people like the the place in ohio where i'm from has like this big has a big drug problem that was not there just like a decade and a half ago when i was there yeah um it's, and, and, it's, I think, and, and I think you're seeing some of that reflected in the candidacies of like your your Bernie Sanderses and your Donald Trumps like that. Now that people who the system is trained to care about are being affected, we're starting to like hear more about it and we'll hopefully like see more done about it, too. But it's I don't know. There is it's rough. There's a passage from this book. Uh if it was not outrageous that society should treat with such rigid precision those of its members who were most poorly endowed in the chance distribution of wealth and were therefore most deserving of tolerance. With these questions asked and answered, he condemned society and sentenced it. He sentenced it to his hatred. Yeah. That is Jean Valjean in prison, basically having a Bernie Sanders moment. Um, <laughs> it's just interesting to consider that and i was just i wanted to get you talking about that because i feel like at times it feels like a big old problem that is uh like just happens and is like a a monster that doesn't have any like human faces uh and i think one of the reasons that this book has probably endured aside from the action adventure aside from the romance between marius and cassette that i really undersold on this podcast uh aside from the historical interest, it is a really compelling portrait of people down on their luck and what the heck they're going to do about it and what they can't do about it and the ways in which it affects a whole strata of people. Yeah. Um, So it's a good book. It's really tough. There's a lot. The characters are very long winded at times. Which doesn't help. Like, you can kind of see a two-page speech coming a mile away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which certainly didn't help when, when you're like, oh, I'm really excited about what's going to happen next. But, okay, uh, member of the Friends Day Busse, you're going to give an inspirational speech on this barricade before you die. Cool. Uh, i got to sit through this speech now. Like, you can kind of when you look at the two at the pages and you can just see the blocks of text come in right um victor hugo also loves exclamation points he just loves them oh really he uses them all the time he doesn't seem like i don't know it just seems like a time where like there wouldn't be a lot to exclamation point about i don't know they seem more reserved <laughs> no he's all it's like oh what was this oh misery oh god how did this happen it's a oh, lot that of, kind of stuff alas yeah, and alack alas and alack <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's, that's Les Mis. That's not all of Les Mis. There's a lot more in there. Um, sure. we didn't really, we hardly talked about the musical, which is like one of the most popular musicals ever. And for a variety of reasons does not touch on half of the like poop tube stories and Waterloo yeah, history. Right. No, I mean my, I, that's fine because like my non Hamilton musical knowledge is pretty shallow. So. <laughs> I would say it's from the one time I saw it as a kid and kind of some of the other occasional uh, interactions I've had with it along the way there's there's stuff that Hamilton owes to it certainly so if you are if you are someone who is like new to musicals and part of what's getting you is like historical veracity and like the high stakes of a of a story set in a historical time period that's like rife with revolution and adventure and stuff then yeah right you just go check out les mis um okay yeah yeah that's uh, that that question you're asking about like poverty and stuff is going to stick with me for a bit i don't know if i like gave the answer you were hoping for but i just i just have like a bunch of thoughts that i don't really actively engage with because it's too hard because it's too, I it was that, i think that's just what a lot of people do is they don't like actively 
think about it. Yeah, and and Marius is an interesting example because he chooses to live frugally, um, which upsets some people over the course of the book. Mm-hmm. And he, when he like witnesses the Tenardiers when they're pretending to be the Jondrettes, he can see the uh, like poverty that they've created for themselves. Like it's it's. Like he talks about how there's no furniture and how there's just like hay places where there should be like a bed or the chairs are all broken. And then before Jean Valjean comes over to maybe give them some money, uh, Tenardier tells his kids, go break a window, like go (laughs) smash that and like wife, go get in the bed and pretend to be sick. So we're like, we look poorer than we are. Uh, And he's, you can kind of just see how it is both there and just exists this this level of poverty uh, but then Hugo doesn't shy away from then showing people who will take advantage of it at the same time yeah um it's it's pretty interesting uh and i the, the thing that will stick with me for a long time with this book and it's a it's an understanding of the world that i'm slowly been coming to as i encounter it in various works of fiction the wire is a really good example of uh the tough road ahead for former convicts like any time Jean Valjean admits who he is to someone, the like meteor that hits the earth when that happens gets like two pages of dialogue, right? And, yeah, and thoughts, uh-huh. and the like, the idea that he committed any crime and served time and is now trying to like come back to society is not people are not having it. Um, yes, yeah. it's, it's scandalous, which. I don't know. I, I'm developing, or at least I'm trying to foster an, an empathy for people in that situation for crimes that are not like major felonies where people right. like, yeah, really yeah. got hurt. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just a thing I'm thinking about. And yeah, this book's really good. If you can carve out the time, please read it. We re- I read the the C the C E Wilbur translation that was like adapted by Lee Fonstock and Norman McAfee. If it has the painting of Fantine from the mid nineteenth century that was also used on all the art for Les Mis, like that's the one. Go get that one. So you you would say to people who are going to read it, like do read the unabridged version because it yeah, gives more. But don't read it for a weekly book podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and I want to give a shout out to Kelly who recommended this book to us. She's a Patreon supporter of the show, uh, and it took us a very long time to get to. Um, so I'm very happy that we did get to it. Thank you very much. Uh, and in a few seconds, you're gonna, we're going to find out how you, could, you, the listener now, could recommend a book to the show. But first, I have to thank everyone who reached out to us on social media this week. Uh, that's facebook.com slash overduepod and twitter.com slash overduepod. Andrew, I didn't prepare a list of names because I was too busy reading the book. Well, thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> yeah. The time to tell me that was not now. It was like two hours ago and we were still prepping stuff. I could edit um, it in if you want. No, it's no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Um, if you want to find out more about the show, you can go to OverduePodcast.com where we have links to iTunes and our RSS feed and our Stitcher page. Those are all ways you can use to subscribe to the show. Um, if you do subscribe on iTunes, leave us ratings and reviews. We keep getting a good trickle of those every week and it makes us feel good and it makes us rise up in the iTunes rankings. Um, you can find links to Spreaker, our podcast host, HeadGum, our podcast network. And, um, if you go to the page and click on the Patreon link, or if you go to patreon.com slash overdue pod, you can find out more about how to support the show financially. And if you give us $5 a month or more, we will bump a book that you want us to read to the top of your list. No promises on when we will get to it, but we will get to it. Yeah. Um, did I mention our email, which is overduepod at gmail.com? Right. Um, that's the email address that you can use to email us email. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Andrew, what are you reading next? Uh, we're going to double dip on the Victor Hugo. I'm going to read Hunchback of Notre Dame for next week. Oh, cool. I'll see if I can dig up any like extra Hugo facts. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we need to get to the, the meat of the book fast enough that we didn't get to do all the stuff on his life that we possibly could have done or his like publication history. So we'll, we'll, uh, dig further into that next week. Um, we'll see you next Monday and until then try to be happy one more day before the storm oh, follow as she goes at the barricades of freedom shall I join my brothers there when our 
will be ready for these schoolboys. They will wet themselves with blood. blood. What you better than? Catch them and say, fall. Never know your luck when there's a free fall. Here are you, Dick. Here are you, touch. Most of them are gone, so they won't miss much. Is here, I fight with you. One day, one That was a HeadGum Podcast.